Go ahead and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 5. If we haven't met, my name's Josh. I'm one of the leaders around here. Um, and like I was telling you guys just a minute ago, at Van City, we believe very much that the best way of understanding what it means to be a follow, uh, follower of Jesus is not necessarily by a set of beliefs about God and the afterlife per se, but instead with the concept of apprenticeship. One way of putting it is by considering that the word Christian only shows up two, maybe three, depending on who you ask, times in the entire Bible. And it's never the term that Jesus' followers attribute to themselves or that Jesus himself uses. Instead, both Jesus and those who followed him understood themselves to be disciples. And the New Testament is replete with that term, unlike Christian. Another way of translating that word disciple is apprentice. An apprentice is someone who sets themselves beneath the authority of a teacher that they might be with their teacher, become like their teacher, and do the things their teacher does. Of course, it requires no special insight to see that today within the Western world, America in particular, there are many Christians or many self-identifying Christians, those who hold a basic belief in God, the Bible, perhaps even a general set of ethics. But these same individuals are often not apprentices of Jesus, meaning their lives are not given over completely to three goals, be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus did. So our church, Van City, is, we hope, about rediscovering the lifestyle, the teachings, the practices of Jesus of Nazareth so that we can actually put them into practice ourselves. This is, we believe, the way that we are formed spiritually, the way that we go from the old self to the new self, who is more like Jesus. And so consequently, for several weeks now, we've been in a series on the spiritual discipline of prayer. What does it mean to pray the way that Jesus prayed? And how do we learn to do so ourselves? We've discussed and practiced contemplation and intercession and lament and even worship and imagination. Last week, our friend Chad Johnson was here talking about what it means to take risks in order to hear from God and to pray for other people. So this week, we're going to draw the series to its conclusion with a bit of a prayer training, so to speak. We're going to synthesize many of the ideas we've unpacked throughout the series in order to build a pragmatic how-to manual for what it means to pray for someone. You guys ready? Yep. Great. Thank you. Now, let's begin with John chapter 5. If you're new to the Bible, John's just four books into what we call the New Testament. Feel free to consult the table of contents. No shame in that. John acts as one of the four first century biographies of this famous first century figure, controversial as he is fascinating, Jesus of Nazareth. So as such, John documents many events and sayings from the life of Jesus, one of which we'll read now from John chapter 5, verse 19. Jesus says, very truly I tell you, the Son, meaning Jesus, can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father, God, doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. And this is really fascinating. In context, Jesus has been at the hub of some incredible happenings. People come to Jesus with serious diseases, and he cures them by touching them. Jesus encounters evil spirits and demons, and he drives them from people, even in some cases from nature itself, with a single command. Jesus brings dead people back to life. He encounters broken, messed up individuals on the margins of society, and he tells them, hey, the wrong things that you've done are now forgiven. 
And here in John chapter 5, Jesus says, look, this authority and this behavior isn't my unique invention. I'm just carrying on in what my Father God does because I know what my Father God is like. Jesus says something to the, same effect, uh, uh, to the same effect a bit later. Let's turn over just a page or two to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. When you get there, read along with me beginning in verse 28. Jesus said, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. If the premise of tonight's teaching is a sort of practical prayer training, then why begin here? Well, because in order to experience prayer as life with God, in order to hear from God's Spirit, to prophesy over other people, to risk and to know the sort of relational intimacy with the Father that Jesus knew so well, we must first understand that Jesus of Nazareth did his incredible work, what is often referred to as the ministry of Jesus, because he understood what God is like and what God does. And so, with Jesus as our teacher and we as his apprentices, we must do accordingly. Because everything that you do is tethered to some belief, either conscious or subconscious. The vast majority of us rarely or never act without some belief to carry that action. These beliefs can be good or bad, they can be healthy or unhealthy, uh, they can be personal or they can be universal, they can be grounded in logic or in faith or in sense or in nonsense. For instance, uh, I hold a very strong, very personal conviction that it is unethical for me personally to participate in animal cruelty by purchasing or consuming products that create or contribute to animal cruelty. Relax, this is just my thing. I haven't prepared a lecture on animal cruelty unless... No, I haven't prepared a lecture on animal cruelty. So in this case, my action, that is re refraining from meat and from animal products, is tethered to a belief. I should not participate in animal cruelty personally, which is itself tethered to a larger belief. The scriptures teach that God is concerned for his creation, including the ethical treatment of animals and that violence is condemned by Jesus, all these sorts of things. This is an example of logic-based belief in action. I am, like you, not always quite so deliberate. Uh, apparently, I'm learning that I'm a deeply relational person, people smarter than me tell me. For some variety of unhealthy reasons, to be quite frank, from time to time, part of me believes that uh, the people that I love will forget me or abandon me or something like that. And as a result, I often experience tremendous disappointment or even grief when I can't be in two places at once. Sometimes it causes me to prioritize poorly or I find myself unable to enjoy quality time with people I care for because I'm retreating into my own mind and my own fear, however irrational. The way I behave is hopelessly connected to the things that I believe, in this case, for worse. All that to say, what you believe to be true of God, everything that comes to mind, both consciously and subconsciously, when you think of God, will shape the way that you pray, for better or for worse. Greg Boyd puts it like this, the way you imagine God is the single most important factor in your life. For our relationship with God is mediated through our mental images of Him. 
How we imagine God thus determines the sort of relationship you have with Him and the sort of difference this relationship will make in your life. If we embrace an untrustworthy mental picture of God, we cannot enter into a life-giving relationship with Him. Everything God create us, created us to be depends on the beauty and accuracy of your mental picture of God. Jesus explained that his concern for the sick, his commitment to prayer, the healing, the miracles, his forgiveness of messed up people, all of that Jesus attributed to his understanding and belief in what God is like. Meaning when people said, why are you doing all these things and what compels this behavior? Jesus said, I only do what God did first. But think for a moment, many of us do not believe the same things about God. Do we? If you believe, for example, that God is an angry, dissatisfied father who withholds blessing and kindness based on your behavior and your performance, then you will pray for other people as an outworking of that belief. Perhaps you will believe that an individual suffers because they haven't behaved properly or because God operates in tit for tat and you get what you deserve. If you believe that everything unfolds uh, in the universe as according to a unilateral controlled uh, unilaterally controlling God, then you will find yourself unable to pray the way that Jesus prayed, who believed that sickness and suffering came from Satan, not God, and he rebuked sickness rather than saying, oh, God is in control, this is his will for your life. In fact, a great many of our ideas about God, that the ones that you and I take for granted when we pray, are entirely absent from the ministry and the prayer life of Jesus. Jesus, for example, is not once documented inflicting pain and suffering in order to teach his followers a lesson. And yet, Jesus certainly becomes angry. In fact, let's look at one example of such a time from Mark chapter 1. This is an amazing story. A man with leprosy came to him, Jesus, and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. In the story, with what does Jesus become indignant? The leprosy, the sickness, or maybe even Jesus is indignant with the assumption that this man makes that Jesus might not be willing to heal the leprosy. And in, in any rate, it isn't the man that Jesus is indignant with in and of himself because he is willing and he reached out to heal him. Jesus believes leprosy is an injustice from Satan. Read throughout the Gospels. Jesus constantly attributes sickness and suffering to the devil. Um, and Jesus acts on his belief. His behavior is tethered to his belief. And here's why this is crucial for our prayer training. Jesus only does what he sees the Father doing. If we are to learn what it means to pray as Jesus prayed, we must first learn to understand what Jesus understood about God the Father. And to do so, we have to look to Jesus himself. He does what the Father does. Brian Zahn puts it like this, God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There has never been a time when God was not like Jesus. Salvation comes about because Jesus reveals the Father and does the Father's work. Jesus tells us that the great work of the Father is to give life to the dead. Thus, the primary problem the gospel addresses is not personal guilt, though this is included, but human subjugation to death. 
If we think judicial guilt is the primary problem of sin instead of death, we greatly misrepresent the nature of salvation and concoct a distorted gospel where Jesus is saving us from God. No, Jesus reveals the Father, does the work of the Father, and saves us from the dominion of sin and death. The author of Hebrews summarizes it like this. The Son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. After He had provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. If what we do is rooted in what we believed, then we must put before us this idea most precious to the church for thousands of years, we believe, in the words of 1 John, that God is love. Of course, there are many attributes to the complex personhood of God, but none of them are referenced with such definitiveness by the Scriptures. God is just, for example, but the Scriptures do not say that God is justice. God gets angry, but the Scriptures do not teach that God is anger. And yet the Scriptures do teach that God is love, which has led God's children and Jesus' followers to conclude that all attributes of God's complex personhood flow from this one fundamental truth of God. God is love. And what an incredibly beautiful and nearly unfathomable truth at the heart of all reality. So good, in fact, that many of us struggle to believe it could be so. Um, I've been quite candid with you guys in the past about my own struggles with uh, self-loathing because it's quite difficult for me to not actively dislike, let alone love myself. It is often predictably difficult for me to conceive of a God who is deeply aware of my every flaw and yet loves me just the same. With God, I am often like a, a, you know, a mopey teenager or something. I'm convinced that God is unwilling to speak with me, that he scowls on me with disapproval, that he shares in this deep-seated uh, dissatisfaction that I have for myself. And yet, upon the teaching of Jesus, I live as one submitted to the truth of the Scriptures. So I imagine God full of frustrated rebuke, and the Scriptures describe him quite differently. Here's one text, for example. Yahweh, your God, is with you. The mighty warrior who saves, he will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. In the book of Jeremiah, God speaks to his kids, the nation of Israel, in one of her worst seasons of rebellion, and he says this, O Ephraim is my dear, dear son, my child in whom I take pleasure. Every time I mention his name, my heart bursts with longing for him. Everything in me cries out for him. Softly and tenderly I wait for him. It is for these reasons that Jesus himself taught his broken, imperfect disciples to pray always presupposing God's loving goodness. He described it like this. If you then, disciples of Jesus, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Jesus teaches that our good Father loves to give good gifts. Does he say to those who are well-behaved? 
Does, does, no, no, he does. does. Does he say to those who get their act together first? No. What is the qualification for which God loves to give good gifts? To those who ask. Either these things are true or they are not. If they are indeed true, then our action, that is the way that we pray, must be informed by and flow from this truth. Many of us believe these things in some abstracted theological sense, I know I do, but we do not believe them in a profound and personal way. For more than a decade, uh, I traveled around the world playing music, uh, surviving on very, very little. Uh, and so when free and plentiful food was offered, I, was I would essentially gorge myself uh, because who knew when there would be food again and how much of it there would be and how good it would be or for how cheap. So if food, free food came along, you ate as much as you possibly could and hoped it would sustain you for days at a time, right, Mike? Yeah, you know the technique. To this day, for some reason, when the opportunity arises to have free food, I continue to find myself loading up uh, as if it were the most precious and rare of all life's perks. And uh, a little while ago, just a couple of weeks ago, um, we were somewhere where they served like a free dinner, and I was like on plate three or four or something. And Abby was just leaning, my wife Abby was leaning over just watching me eat, and she leaned in close and said, you know, you're not on tour anymore. There will be more food later. And I was like, oh my gosh, she's right. I guess I still do this for that reason. Uh, you know, how, how many of you have heard stories... Um, less funny, obviously, stories of, of foster children who have finally been adopted and yet still hide and hoard food for, for more heartbreaking reasons than they travel in a band. Uh, they're mistreated and deprived while living home to home, so resilient kids develop survival strategies. And after discovering the food that they hide away, their adoptive parents will tell them, listen, the days that necessitate hiding and hoarding food are over. You are absolutely provided for. This is a good home. But that belief comes very slowly. And many of us, though we have been adopted into God's family, continue to live and behave as if we were orphans. Many of us deep down believe that there isn't enough of God's goodness to go around. Uh, we believe it's for someone else, sure, but it's not for us. We believe that we don't deserve it, that God is too angry with us, or that we aren't spectacular enough to merit His incredible work. Maybe God shows up for people who memorize the Bible and pray for three hours every morning, but not for us. Adopted into God's family and still hoarding food. How can we then ask for good gifts without inhibition? How can we believe God is ready to do incredible, extravagant things for us and for the people over whom we pray? And Jesus' illustration of a child asking uh, a father for good gifts should be a telling one. Most of us, I assume, are, are painfully aware of the uninhibited way in which children ask for things. Uh, last weekend, my friend Chad was visiting from Nashville so he could speak here at Van City. And he stayed at my house during uh, his, the short duration of his visit. And at first, my son Beck, who's three was having a blast. He loved it. He, he was talking to Chad about dinosaurs and lizards, and uh, he, Chad showed him a few bad magic tricks that I can't believe even fooled a three-year-old, and they laughed together. They were having this serious bro-down. It was amazing. 
Uh, but when it came time for like the, the adults, you know, got carried away in conversation, Beck became understandably restless. And he attempted several approaches. First, he was polite and he said, excuse me, excuse me, guys, can you talk to me now? And we laughed, oh, isn't that cute? And we talked to him for a second and then we started talking to each other again. So next he suggested something out. Hey, guys, 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 excuse me, maybe we should all play with dinosaurs. And we're like, no, you can, but we're going to talk for a second, you know. And then finally he gave up on all those things and he just started saying to me, really loudly in a room full of everyone, I want Chad to go home now. Um, he went on to say this many times throughout Chad's visit, whenever he felt as though Chad had somehow usurped quality time that should have been his. Um, and of course, it wasn't a kind thing to say, and there were consequences. But the point is that Beck sincerely believes that he can ask me for just about anything to a fault. Um, he unashamedly asks for my attention, for my time, for my affection, for provisions, uh, for intervention in, in conflict uh, every single day, many, many times a day. Sometimes I'm able to oblige him and others less so, and yet he continues to ask and to ask and to ask. And one reason is I believe that he is more informed by my disposition toward him rather than the expected results, meaning he must realize by now in his short three years on earth that I may or may not grant any given request, and maybe he doesn't always know why, but he knows that I love him, and he gets that I want to give him things, that I like that, that I delight in him, and I delight in giving him things, and that's reason enough to keep asking. Beck even asks me to get things for other kids. So we, we live in this duplex, and on one side are our friends Mike and Lindsay, and uh, they have a little daughter named Ida, and our kids are just constantly wandering into each other's yards sometimes when we don't want them to, but it's too late, and now they're playing, so everyone has to sit outside, that kind of thing. Uh, and the other afternoon, uh, Ida came wandering into our yard, and Beck was eating this tiny little ice cream cone for Trader Joe's. You know, the little guys, they're, they're quite delicious. You can try one if you like. And, uh, and of course, Ida's like, I want an ice cream cone. And Beck said, hold on, my dad, I will get you one. And then he steps over to me, and he's like, Dada? Ida will have an ice cream cone. And I thought, oh, that's funny. But this is actually the very approach with which we are to pray for other people. And it is at the heart of this prayer training. So before we end tonight, I want to get into a bit of the practical how-to. Are you guys still awake? Do you have a few more minutes in you before we end? Yep. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, if you've been here before, you know that on every single Sunday, we make a direct effort to listen to and to hear from God and to then make available a space in which people can go to someone for prayer. When someone does stand up and they make their way to someone on the prayer team, they might need a variety of things. Maybe they need a prophetic word or perhaps they need healing for some physical or spiritual or mental thing going on in their lives. Um, maybe they want someone to intercede with them, you know, to just ask God for something on their behalf. Or perhaps they need more faith or they need a fresh filling of God's Spirit and on down the list. And in order to parse out those possibilities, our prayer team enters into a simple three-step process. There's the interview, and then we listen, and then we say and or do what we feel like God is saying or doing. And we approach that method with a couple of techniques. Uh, when possible, we attempt to pray with groups of the same gender, not at all because 
guys praying for gals and vice versa is any way wrong or inferior whatsoever. It's not. In fact, it can be advantageous. But only because we want to create safe spaces for vulnerability, and we realize that uh, sensitive topics often come up in prayer or confession, past trauma, sexual sin, that sort of thing. So we want to create safe spaces. So um, when we are in a position where uh, someone is praying for someone of the opposite gender, we usually just encourage a friendly question. Hey, are you comfortable with me praying for you? If not, I can go grab someone else. That's no problem whatsoever. Uh, in a perfect world, we would also have two people at least praying for any one individual, but we're currently woefully understaffed on our prayer team. More on that in just a bit. So understanding the approach... And before we even enter into this three-step process, we frame the time of prayer with the simple presupposition that it is entirely about this individual knowing and seeing the good God who is love that we know and we see. And then we begin the interview. When we believe and hold dear the teachings of Jesus, that God our Father loves to give good gifts to those who ask, then it is entirely appropriate to ask an individual who's come for prayer, what is it that you would like Jesus to do for you tonight? How can I pray for you? From here, you can use your powers of social deduction to determine whether or not this person is interested in talking at length. Um, sometimes they'd rather not go into detail, and that's fine. Uh, if that's the case, assure them that it is fine. Tell them, no worries, I'd be happy to listen to the Spirit on your behalf just the same. If the person is up for talking, you may venture a few brief questions to help frame the following time of prayer, what's going on in their lives exactly that they'd like prayer for, if they need healing, uh, for what, what's wrong, if they have a pain, a physical condition, at what level is that pain at currently, because we believe that God does heal people and we want to be able to sort of assess the situation afterward. And during this short dialogue, the interview, you'll want to be attentive to anything God's Spirit might be stirring in your mind or your senses. Once, uh, my friend Alex and I were about to pray for a young man who had come to us asking for prayer over uh, something quite general. I think it was a job thing. He was stressed, and he felt like there had been a lapse in intimacy between him and Jesus because of stress at his job. And we asked him a few simple questions about that scenario, and I was like, great, we've got it. Let's listen. We'll pray for you. And he was replying candidly. But just before we went to listen to the Spirit together, my friend Alex asked this young man, Hey, listen, please disregard if I'm off and take zero offense. But may I ask if there's also something on your heart that you feel as though you need to confess but you're scared? And instantly the young man went like pale and rigid and he was obviously choking back tears and he just nodded his head yes. And my friend Alex went on, Is it a struggle with pornography? And the young man's head dropped, and he nodded yes again. And we began to listen to God's Spirit and speak healing and forgiveness over this man. It was a really powerful time of prayer that I would have completely bypassed and just gone to, like, let's listen to the job thing that you asked us about. Maybe we would have heard something. We would have prayed for him, and we would have sent him on his way. And af So afterward, I asked Alex what had given him that idea to even ask that question in the first place. And he simply said that he felt as though the Spirit brought it up, and it could be really weird or it could be appropriate, and we might as well ask. Um, so he risked a question, and in this case, it was dead on. Now, I'm not saying accuse everyone who comes to, for prayer of looking at pornography or anything like that, but I am saying that we do believe the Spirit can speak to what we often think of our intuition, and you need to pay attention. Even in that beginning phase of just having a conversation, risk a question. It's okay when you deliver questions with humility. People very rarely get offended. No one gets hurt. No one dies, and it's totally fine. But, and this is very important, this is not a time for you to offer your personal counsel and advice. 
this is a time for you to listen to God's Spirit and then to pray over someone. So no giving quips of wisdom during the interview. Oh, that's happened to me before. Here's what I did. No big deal. No relaying your own personal experience. No counsel and no advice fueled exclusively by your own disposition. Listen to what they have to say. Then listen to what God has to say. And if there is an exchange of wisdom and advice, we want it to be from God's Spirit collaborating with us, not our own opinions alone. So we want to stop and listen before we say anything. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Yes? Okay, great. After you've listened to the individual, you then listen to what God has to say about it and what he'd like to do about it. So you tell the individual, you actually give them some notice so they don't get weirded out. Hey, I'm going to take a minute. I'm going to wait in silence. I'm just going to sit here quietly. I'm going to listen and see if God's Spirit has anything to say. And then you do exactly that. What occurs to you during that time may fall under one of several categories. It could be what is called a word of knowledge. So a few months ago, during our time of pre-gathering prayer, every week at 4 o'clock, a bunch of us get together. We listen to God's Spirit and see if He wants to say anything about the gathering. All of you are absolutely invited to that every single week if you want to join us. One week we were doing that, and our friend Levi confessed to the room, hey, this is weirdly specific, but what popped into my head while I was listening was that a woman who's, I believe he said, a woman who's 27 years old with short brown hair just learned that she's pregnant, and she's worried about it because of a previous condition. And we thought, that is very specific. So during the gathering, we actually said something that was way uh, more broad. I think that we, Cam and I, kind of chickened out. And we're like, eh, let's just say the generic thing. Um, and then sure enough, uh, a young lady who fit every specific detail of that sense came forward to pray. We learned during the time of prayer that she was 27 and did have short brown, all those different things. That's a word of knowledge. It's just a piece or pieces of data that come to your mind. It could be like a name or like Levi's thing, a description. It could be like a phrase or a story or a picture or a scenario. Sometimes it makes perfect sense to you. Sometimes it makes no sense at all. Sometimes it could even be a physical sensation that's attached to something God wants to do in someone else. And that offers insight into something you couldn't possibly know otherwise, a word of knowledge. And here's the thing. I am convinced that a tremendous amount of words of knowledge go unresolved because the recipient decides they aren't worth mentioning. We convince ourselves it's too weird, it's too specific, it's too silly, or that it had to be just us, um, and we keep it to ourselves. In fact, during that time, Levi mentioned that he had debated sharing it at all because he didn't want to feel foolish, and it was so specific, but he just went for it anyway. And until our desire to see God move outweighs our fear of appearing foolish, we'll never experience everything that God wants to do in our lives and in the lives of people around us. The thing is, Levi could have said that exact same thing, word for word, and he could have been completely wrong. And guess what? Life goes on. No one would have died. No one would have been offended. You risk, you learn, and you try again. It's really that simple. Another thing that might occur to you while listening is something called prophecy. Now, sadly, in our culture, prophecy has become a synonym for predicting the future, but really predicting is uh, only one very rare type of prophecy. More accurately, prophecy is revealing God's heart to someone else. That's it. As in, hey, man, I get this sense that God is saying this over your life. That's prophecy. A while back, my wife had this powerful image occur to her during a time of prayer. 
And it was of the church gathering, and it was populated with individuals who were all shackled to the ground by a length of chain, an actual long length of chain. So they were free to move around, and uh, it created an illusion of freedom, but they were, after all, shackled down. And the, the, the idea that she got was that God wanted to break those chains altogether so that those people could experience true freedom. That was a powerful instance of prophecy, revealing God's heart about a certain person or people or a situation. And it is true that in very rare occasions, prophecy may involve a prediction about something that may come to pass in the future. Uh, more often than not, it is forthtelling rather than foretelling, if that makes sense. It's also true that the Holy Spirit will convict sin, um, but it is absolutely crucial to remember that the Spirit will not speak judgment or condemnation, but will only, in the language of Paul in the New Testament, strengthen, encourage, and comfort. So think of the difference between the way my friend Alex approached that um, momentary where the Spirit revealed sin in another person's life and he brought it up in such a way that was humble and kind for that person's strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. And finally, the Spirit will never contradict what we know to be true of the Scriptures. A while back, uh, I was talking to a young couple. This actually happened to me a few times, this exact scenario. Uh, a young couple who, though unmarried, were living together and sleeping together. And I, as, you know, like Mr. Pastor Josh, encouraged that, hey, if you follow Jesus, the, I would invite you to consider the teachings of Jesus and the scriptures and make uh, radical changes to your lifestyle, uh, to which they replied, you know, we prayed about it and we listened to God and we feel like this is fine. So if the sense that you get when praying contradicts the scriptures and the teachings of Jesus, it's not from God. It's really that simple. At any rate, absolutely anything that you hear or see or receive from God must be communicated with absolute humility. Never, ever, ever say, God says, fill in the blank, please. Instead, you might say something like, I could be wrong, but I get this sense. Or maybe you'd say, this is what I think the Spirit is saying. Does that resonate with you at all? When you do this, you can risk big, and you won't embarrass God. You certainly won't upset Him. Believe me, I'm absolutely convinced He would rather you try, even if you're dead wrong. Of course, you can also ask them if they hear anything. Hey, do you get any sense at all? And then you can examine that. Now, what if you wait, and you listen, and you don't hear or see anything? So you're just sitting there for a couple of minutes, nothing's coming to you. Um, well, you know, nothing is rarely nothing, so ask God why it is that you can't hear him. This can really take place over the span of like 30 seconds or a minute. If the blankness carries on, there's no need to contrive a special word for the person. You don't have to dream up something generic just so that you can say you heard from God. You can simply pray for them based on what they've told you. If they gave you a specific scenario in their lives, pray for them based on that information that they've given you. If they've said very little, pray for them in as broad a sense as you're able to do. That's perfectly fine. Now, if the person coming for prayer wants to be healed of something, we at Van City, we carry on the interview and we do the listening just the same. Even if they come up and they're like, hey, my leg hurts. I want my leg to stop hurting. We say, great. Do you mind if we stop and listen to God's spirit for a moment? And we go from there. Uh, it's trying to decide whether or not God is speaking or doing anything specific before we uh, do healing or pray healing over that person. 
Um, I was in a situation not so long ago where I was invited to a hospital to pray for this gentleman who had a condition in his throat where he could potentially not be able to speak if some procedure didn't go well and it was, uh, the chances weren't in his favor. It was this whole thing. And uh, he was not a disciple of Jesus. His wife was. And uh, he was, she was like, you've got to pray for healing. Can you please pray this? And I was like, absolutely. I would so love to pray for healing over your husband. Do you mind if I listen for a second first? And she was kind of like, not offended whatsoever, but like, oh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess so, but I just did tell you exactly what we're praying for, but sure, if you want to listen, go ahead. And I felt like during that time, I had this really weirdly specific thing for this gentleman about something that happened in his childhood, and I brought it up, and I was like, I know you asked me to come in here and pray for your throat. I, I think God's talking about something that happened to you when you were a kid. Does that make any sense? And it did. It was exactly what God wanted to say to this gentleman at that time, and we spent like a good hour praying about all this other stuff before we ever got to the thing in his throat. And spoiler alert, God healed him. It was this amazing, incredible time. Um, and I do not think it would have carried on the same way had we not stopped to listen beforehand. Now, all that said, you listen, you go on to the prayer for healing. Most of the time, it's really quite simple. You put your hands on that person if it's appropriate to do so. Um, and you speak with the authority given to you by Jesus. It might sound something like, in the name of Jesus, leg be healed right now, and all pain leave this leg in Jesus' name. It might sound something like, in God's kingdom, there is no cancer, and we want to see God's kingdom here now, so cancer, leave this body in the name of Jesus the King. Whatever the case, however complicated theologically healing and spiritual warfare ultimately are, the prayer for healing is itself really uncomplicated. As we do not do the healing uh, and are therefore simply conduits through which God's healing flows. And because of this, there's no need to unnecessarily complicate the time of prayer by obsessing with the problem and getting every single detail or reciting verbose poetry or, or crowding the prayer with all sorts of qualifications. If this, then that. If this, then that. Um, really, the only presupposition that you need to bring into that time is that God's desire is always to heal. In fact, we see this spelled out in 1 Timothy chapter 2 this way. God, our Savior, wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And the Greek word here translated as saved is a word sozo, which has this really robust meaning in Greek. It reads much more than our traditional theological assumptions about salvation. Sozo means, in one sense, healed, or it means to be made whole, and that includes physical healing as well, or it means to be saved in the way that we often think about salvation. Now, as we've discussed in great detail throughout the series, God's will, or put another way, God's desire, is not the only will at work in the universe. And as a result of our will, of the will of the demonic realm, of the will of a fallen world, not everyone is healed, not everyone is healed instantaneously, but we approach healing prayer presupposing that what God wants to do is to heal and to make whole and to save. God desires healing and wholeness and salvation, and we pray grounded in that belief. If the condition is somehow quantifiable, like it's a specific pain that they're experiencing in the moment, or a lack of mobility, or an obvious wound, then we pray and we check to see if that prayer has been answered to any degree in that moment. Often in my experience, sometimes it is like a little bit. There's less pain than there was, or maybe there's a sensation. I feel warm, or I feel this way or that way. Um, and if that's the case, we might listen and then pray again. 
Um, if it's not the case that there is any sort of immediate reaction, that's absolutely okay. Uh, we might just commit to ongoing prayer in the future, even in the absence of immediate results. And of course, sometimes there's just no way to quantify the situation in the immediate, uh, in, with immediacy anyway. Uh, last week, here's a story for you guys about the process of healing prayer. Um, uh, Chad was here talking, and he was uh, praying at the end of the gathering, and he was going through some things that he thought the Spirit was saying over individuals that were here. And suddenly, he blurted out something that he hadn't prepared before, he, that hadn't come in his time of listening. And he said, man, this is just coming to me. Maybe I'm wrong. I feel as though there's someone who has pain or some condition affecting their right mandible. It was really specific. Um, and then he just said, so in the name of Jesus, be healed. And uh, during that time, I'm sitting over here, and my friend Katie is sitting next to me, and she turns to me, and she's weeping, and she says, I have this infection in my jaw, and it's right, it's exactly what he's describing, right in that spot. So I said, oh, okay, well, do you want me to pray for you? And she says, no, I'm saying it was healed. It was just healed right now. The wound that was there is now gone, as in it was there before we prayed, and now it's not there anymore. Now, hold on. So I was like, man, that's incredible. It's amazing. We celebrated. It was beautiful. I even uh, texted her a few days afterward and said, hey, is, is any trace of that infection coming back? She's like, no, it's amazing. Um, and I even uh, sort of spent my time studying and writing this teaching, including this story. And I talked to Katie today, and she uh, confessed that some of the pain and the symptoms of the condition had returned. And she felt as though she hasn't sorted through all the details yet. Um, but she said, man, I wonder if there's something that God wants to say to me or to do in my life um, that I, I've missed yet. And not at all that God is withholding healing until she sorts it all out, but that healing is often a process. Um, what happened on Sunday has not been invalidated by what happened the following Sunday. Um, we don't become discouraged if when healing is a process, and we don't invalidate the fact that there was a wound there, and then the wound went away. And certainly we don't invalidate the fact that some guy from Nashville was able to, in a moment, hear from God speak and speak, uh, hear from God's voice and speak with such specificity a condition he couldn't know about. Otherwise, I'm sure you could be cynical and say, like, it was a lucky guess. Um, it was a really, really lucky guess if that was the case. Um, and at any rate, that's often the case. In that case, we commit to continue prayer, pray for Katie again. Ask God to speak. Is there something we're missing? Is there something else do you want to do here? And assume that God, what God wants is always what's best for Katie, for you, and for me as well. Um, just as incredible and yet just as simple as the prayer for healing is the prayer against Satan and demons, uh, spiritual warfare. Believe it or not, as strange as this may strike some of you, in these times of prayer we are often confronted by what can only be described as like a demonic manifestation. Um, sometimes in individuals describe being oppressed by demons themselves, as in they are actually aware of a certain sense of demonic oppression. Other times the oppression becomes some obvious outward manifestation. And remember, even Jesus himself was oppressed by Satan and demons. Think back to our series on Matthew's Gospel, the time of genuine temptation Jesus experienced when he was accosted by the devil himself. So those of us who follow in his footsteps should not think it outrageous to carry on in his experience as well. And as intimidating as this may sound, one of my friends and mentors, uh, Dr. Gary Brashears, who's at Western Seminary, he offers a very straightforward, helpful uh, methodology in dealing with the demonic in prayer, adapted from Jesus' example. And it's really uh, this simple. Quote scripture and speak the truth. Tell the demon to leave in Jesus' name. And then these are his words, not mine. Do Jesus' stuff. 
So you, <laughs> you quote scripture and speak the truth. When someone says, for example, that God hates them, or if they behave erratically in some like surprisingly scary way and they say something like, God hates you, you know, that's happened to me before. I was like, oh my gosh, he does? Wait, that's not true. Um, you simply rebut. No, the scriptures say that God is love. That is a lie. And you speak the truth. Um, you tell the demon to leave in Jesus' name. Gary puts it as simply as like, you, out now, that's it. Um, you have been given the authority of Jesus to do exactly that. And then, in his words, do Jesus-y stuff, meaning that you pray or you worship or you continue to quote Scripture. Now, to end tonight, back to the three steps of the prayer process, the interview, the listening, and saying or doing whatever God is saying or doing. After you've completed that process, uh, what next? You know, we talked a lot about, like, healing and what happens and doesn't happen and the demonic and stuff. More often than not, in my experience, it's a pretty ordinary, sometimes beautiful, sweet, uh, sometimes une seemingly uneventful time of praying for people. Either way, after you've completed that process, what next? Um, I would encourage you to make sure that you're sensitive to any potential aftercare that might be necessary instead of just like, amen, you're welcome, and then send them on their way. Maybe that person needs a community. Maybe they need to be connected to certain people in the season of life that they're in. Uh, maybe you're the person who can direct them in that direction, or you can ask someone else. Maybe they need to be invited to continue returning for prayer. Uh, you know, sometimes when I pray for healing for people and I see like some level of breakthrough, but not all the way, and we keep at it for a little while, I'll just say like, hey, um, I can commit to keep praying for you. Sometimes this is a process. Would you like to come back again? And we do it. Maybe what this person needs based on your conversation is uh, help from someone else. It's above your pay grade. They need like a recommended counselor. Uh, we have a list here. You can ask any of the leaders at Van City and they can get you that list. The point is prayer and what happens therein is often a process regardless of what type of prayer it is. So beware, be aware of possible next steps in that process. This is simply the kind of procedure that we use here at the gatherings. Um, we encourage you guys to use this in your communities, or if you're at coffee, or you're praying over your kids, and so on. It is not by any means the necessary rule book for praying for people, not, not at all, but this is one very helpful template. Uh, as I mentioned early, earlier, we are currently in pressing need of more folks willing to do exactly this thing on our prayer team. So I'd invite each of you guys to give that possibility some thoughtful consideration. If you go to vancity.church slash serve, uh, and then you uh, can go to register, there's a little box you can click for the prayer team. Katie, who's the deacon over our prayer team, will let you know what comes next and how to get into the rotation. We'd love, so love to have more people than we need <laughs> for the prayer team. I would love to have three people ready to pray for any individual rather than Katie saying, there's no one here. Someone please come help us again. So think about that. Also, if you guys want to consider joining us downstairs at four o'clock each week for a time of listening prayer before the gathering when you have time, that's a great place to learn and to risk and to step into the things of the Spirit. Um, and finally, I just want to say this before we end and we worship again. I I'm completely aware of the fact that, and some of you, I could probably guess knowing you, some of you are deselecting yourselves for both the prayer team as a formality and simply from the prospect of praying over any given person right now. Some of you are thinking, that's all well and good. I can't do that, or I just won't do that, and that's that. Maybe it's because you imagine yourself unworthy 
or you think that even after hearing all this, you're still unqualified, or you don't think you have the right charisma, or that you don't know the right things to say, or you don't have the right experience, whatever it might be. And I want to tell you, if you hear nothing else, please hear me on this. If you follow Jesus, then you have the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead alive in you. You can do all the things that Jesus did, and you can do better things. And those are not my words. Those are Jesus' words. If you imagine yourself an unspectacular person, well, great news. Uh, Jesus often prefers to work through the inexperienced and the messy and the unqualified and the unimpressive. And wouldn't you love to see your good Father give good gifts to those who ask?